Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the, le- the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers of the film and TV makers, uh, writers, directors, costume designers, cinematographers, production designers, sound editors, sound mixers, video editors, um, actors, of course, you name it. And of course, one of my favorites, composers. We talk to all of them. And where today's show is concerned, we're talking with, uh, how about an Oscar nominee who happened to write and direct a film that has six Oscar nominations? That's right. Greta Gerwig is joining us live in just a few minutes. I am so excited uh, to have Greta on the show. I always love talking to her. It's been a little while since we have spoken. Uh, But the very first time I met and spoke with Greta was going back a long time ago to Baghead. One of those little mumblecore gems from Jay and Mark Duplass. So that's going back quite a few years. And since then, it has been a joy to watch Greta grow, not only as an actress, uh, as an actor, but also as a writer and director. So she's going to be joining us to talk about the little women, the little women craze. And obviously, based on the box office and the accolades it's getting, you know, many people over the past 150 years since Louisa May Alcott wrote Little Women, Um, Which, for those of you that don't realize it, the book actually came out in two parts. Uh, The first part came out in 1868, and the second part came out in 1869. But it has primarily been considered to be for for women, for girls. Uh, Back in the day, it would be the equivalent of what we now have as a young adult novel. Um, But based on all of the all of the the law the lauds and praise. And the box office. A lot of men are watching this film too. And uh, we're going to talk to Greta about the making of shooting on film. God bless her. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And her six Oscar nominations for the film. And then after Greta today, we're going to have two more indie filmmakers joining us. Jay Dockendorf and Kenny Sulemanagich, cinematographer. They're going to talk to us about their new short film, Three Deaths, which has its world premiere at Sundance uh, next week, I believe on the 24th. What I love here again, we have two indie filmmakers, one of whom is the cinematographer on the film, shot on film. So this is going to be interesting today to get Greta's perspective on shooting on film with her feature, then to talk to... Jay and Kenny about their decision to shoot on film and Jay and Kenny interesting film uh short film the th- uh called Three Deaths it is written and directed by Jay and it's adapted from Tolstoy's short story 1859 short story Three Deaths four chapters in the short story four chapters on film And it's a story that has never been adapted before. Unlike Little Women that has had, up until Greta's incarnation uh, right now, 
16 prior television and film adaptations of Alcott's book. Um, And I find it interesting that in both both of the films that we're going to be looking at with their filmmakers today, um, Little Women, 1868, 1869, Tolstoy, Tolstoy, 1859, 150, 160 years later, the themes of the written work is still in both situations is still relevant today. Uh, And I find that quite striking. And in some cases, such as with little women, some of the themes, the fact that we're still having to discuss them um, in terms of women's rights and their true and their place in society and the idea of marriage and, in many respects, it is disturbing. In other respects, it's great that the conversation is still there. So it's going to be a fun show today and hopefully a very enlightening one for everybody, including me. But before we get to all of our guests today, SAG Awards over the weekend, Producers Guild over the weekend, 1970 picked up the Producers Guild Award, Very, very thrilled about that. SAG Awards, I think it's safe to say that Oscar Gold, okay, it has been cemented in concrete now uh, for the top four performance performance Oscars. At the SAG Awards, as expected, Joaquin Phoenix picked up outstanding performance by a male actor in a leading role. Renee Zellweger, I've said it from the very beginning, hand her the Oscar now, hand her every award now. She picked up the SAG Award, the actor, for outstanding performance by a female actor in a leading role. Another non-surprise, Brad Pitt picked up the actor for outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role. And of course, who else but Laura Dern, picked up the actor for outstanding performance by a female actor in a supporting role. And, of course, Laura Dern is also in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Uh, so I have, I, I'm curious, you know, did Laura play favorites with Greta's partner, Noah Baumbach, who wrote and directed Marriage Story, or with Greta? Um, maybe we'll find that out today. Television actors were given out last night at SAG. Also, The Crown walked away with the actor for the outstanding performance by an ensemble in a drama series. Um, A comedy series went to The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, Very excited to see the stunt awards given out at the SAG Awards. Avengers Endgame for the outstanding action performance by a stunt ensemble. And Game of Thrones picked up that same award in television. One of the big surprises at the SAG Awards was Parasite picked up the actor for outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. Whether this is indicative of what might happen at the Oscars in terms of the Best Picture race, uh, that remains to be seen. I think the Directors Guild Awards that are coming up this coming weekend Uh, that may add a little more clarity on the situation. But with Parasite picking up that big ensemble award uh, at SAG last night, um, it's, it's, 
it adds some fuel to the fire for Oscar discussion for best picture. But, uh, and of course, I'd say what 90% of the world was hoping for finally happened on camera. Everybody got to see Brad Pitt win, Jennifer Aniston win, and the two of them meet up backstage. So that's about the extent of any gossip that you're going to get here on Behind the Lens. So, ah, and Pam is at the ready, at the ready. The phone is ringing. Uh, I'm, I have to say, I'm very thrilled to have Greta on the show today. So I'm waiting to see what Pam is doing here. Okay, what? She's chatting. She's chatting. My sound engineer is chatting. Do we have Greta on the line? Greta's on. Almost. Okay, so I'll pick it up. Okay, we'll find out. Do we have the publicist or Greta? We'll find out. Greta, are you there? Okay. Are we waiting, Pam? Oh, okay. So we're waiting for the connection right now. Publicist is doing the connection. So we're just waiting for Greta to come on the line. Um, Greta, you're on. Hello. Hi, Greta. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. I am so excited. As as I was saying at the top of the show, I always love talking to you. The very first time you and I... Thank you. very first time you and I ever sat down for an interview was for Baghead. No. Yes. (laughs) Very... That goes back. (laughs) Very first time. Um, you and I sat down for an interview was for Baghead. And I always think back to that with everything I see you do. And the last time we talked, uh, sitting down and chatting together, was for Mistress America. Um, oh, yeah. Love that movie. Oh, my God. I so love that movie. And, you know, my favorite guy, Bill Pullman, loved being in that movie. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But still, I have to say, one of my favorites that you have, uh, one of my favorite performances that you have given came in Lola Versus. I just love yes. Lola. That, that was Thank you. so much you. And now, now you give us Little Women six Oscar nominations. Congratulations. Yes, it's amazing. I'm so grateful and so excited and so proud of all of the people who made this movie. And, you know, I'm proud of Saoirse and I'm proud of Florence, but really that Best Picture nomination is for the entire group, and I couldn't be more thrilled for them. Well, when you look at the individual elements of the film, Greta, you've got Jacqueline Duran, who, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. can do no wrong with costuming. Uh, she's a a legitimate genius yes absolutely and with what and something we have not seen in any of the earlier 16 incarnations of little women before yours 16 on television and film since 1917 have been done she the costuming it is more homespun she used a lot of cottons and the fabrics Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to 
you know, Leroy's version, which obviously you've got Elizabeth Taylor and it has to look fancy schmancy and gorgeous. People were right. people like the March family were not in an economic position to be using silks and brocades uh, to make their clothes. Exactly. So to see this, yeah. this earthiness, this groundedness in your costuming, absolutely. I was thrilled to see that, to see that element. Yeah. It was a bit, I mean, Jacqueline Duran is an incredible, incredible creative mind. And one of the things we talked about a lot was, building the world outside of the March family and then building the March family so that there was a sense of how they're different from everyone else. Mm -hmm. And we always saw them as almost like a, um, like a hippie family Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, who were, uh, you know, made their own clothes and were a little bit different than everyone else in town. So that kind of double reality of like, what is 1861, in the world, and then what are these people, uh, was really fun and it, an incredible challenge to create. But she she can do anything, and did. I mean, just, and ironically, she also does the costuming for 1917, one of your competitors for Best Picture. I know. <laughs> I know. She, she actually, at the end of our movie, she was, she was going to go work on uh, Sam's movie, and, um, she said, well, it will be okay because it's a lot of uniforms, so I don't have to quite, you know, it's not like I have to go dress a bunch of uh, girls again. <laughs> um, so she was very, um, she was like, uh, she enjoyed the contrast, I think. And she did an enormous, I mean, her her job of costuming 1917 is also genius, of course. I mean, she just doesn't. She doesn't ever do it bad. No. It's all good. No, and she does period work so beautifully. When you look at, you know, what she's done in the past with Mr. Turner, Anna Karenina, mm-hmm. um, she does per- yeah. period so beautifully. What led you to Jacqueline as your costume designer? Well, I mean, I have to say uh, it was uh, it, it was her period work. I mean, she's done Pride and Prejudice. She's done Mr. Turner. But then um, she's the costume designer for my very favorite um, director, who's Mike Lee. And she's done not only the Mr. Turners, but she's also done Another Year. And she she can work with him on something that are, that's contemporary, but also period. And I find that her costumes really communicate character in an incredibly economical and elegant way. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, she's able to do things that are more pushed and stylized and she did the costumes for uh beauty and the beast which is a completely different (laughs) set of um requirements and i think that 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 dualism of naturalism and something more heightened was what was so fascinating to me about her Mm -hmm. i mean i i think she's 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 so sensitive to um character and i think that that's Mm -hmm. that's really where her costumes have so much um, special sp- specialness. And, you know, I'm glad you, you you said that because that is exactly why, what I think was the tipping point for Jacqueline to pick up an Oscar nomination for her work in Little Women because the costumes tell us who the character is in this film. It sets up the socioeconomic structure of the town, of the time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then you look at the color, the color palette that the two of you developed, which follows through with your production design. Um, and there again, you've got a master. Jess is brilliant with production design. And then you could bring Yorick oh. in with the cinematography. So that little triumvirate right there, yeah. uh, you couldn't have asked for a better combination, Greta. No, I know. You know, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I'm thrilled that we got this Best Picture nomination because it's for everyone. Because I have to say, uh, of my team, I, I mean, Yorick Lisseau, who was a DP, and um, Jess Goncher, who was a production designer, are, are both so incredible. And I wish they had gotten recognized. I mean, I, you know, you, you can't get them all, but I, but I wish they had been because I, I know what an extraordinary job they did. But I, I feel that they share in it because of the best picture. But I just, um, I, I've been a fan of Jess Saunders for a long time because of the work he's done with uh, Bennett Miller, um, but also with the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. And um and he uh, again, it goes back to character and storytelling, and his um, his sensitivity to that. And he's able to make things that don't that don't look like sets; they look like spaces that people inhabit mm-hmm. and live in. And that's um, that's an incredible skill. Uh, just as ja- Jacqueline can make costumes look like clothes, mm-hmm. these are the clothes these people have. And I think. Um, that's something that I'm very attracted to. And then with Yorick Lasso, he, I loved his work with um, Luca Guaranino. He'd done I Am Love, which I thought was so stunningly mm-hmm. beautiful. And Olivier Aceas as well, um, his, his kind of kinetic movement-oriented camera. And it was that kind of dynamic of both movement and beauty that was appealing to me and exciting to me. And um we talked about the film as being both a painting and a dance. Mm-hmm. And you get, you definitely get that sensibility as you watch the film, Greta, um, with the camera movement. In some respects, it's very observational as we see people outside the March family. We see Mr. Lawrence, you know, quietly sit and watch, watch I Beth. Know. And just these precious moments. But then you get that kinetic energy within the March household, which is always a flurry of activity. So you really get get that sensibility uh, and you feel the energy and the excitement of being one of these sisters, part of this family. And something else that you and York do with the framing within the March house uh, and I don't know if it's the ceilings are lowered or if it's the cam- the framing and the angle that Yorick is using. But you get a, it almost comes with a, a claustrophobic nature, but it doesn't feel claustrophobic. It feels intimate. You feel the closeness of this family through the way the camera is framed, the lens is framed. Mm, yeah, it's, well, you know, the... The, the set itself was exactly in the footprint of the actual Alcott house. And it is um, cozy. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful house, but it's low ceiling mm-hmm. and it's um, small rooms. And I, I always wanted that feeling of them living on top of each other. And something that Jess talked about a lot was that the outside of the house looks very unpromising. It's this kind of a little weathered, a little worn down, but then inside it's a jewel box. 
that mm-hmm. it's something that unfolds for you. And uh, so between York and, and Jess, we wanted to create that kind of magic of opening a world. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have to do with grandeur, but it had to do with life and joy. I mean, one look at the attic and I fell in love with the, pr- the attic is just, that is magic. Just yes, we, I, I think when we saw that set, we all wished we could just curl up and live in there. And actually, while we were shooting during lunch, I would go up to the attic in the dark uh, and I would just sit up there and I'd meditate because it was my favorite um, part of the set that we had. I want to live in that attic. I want to go live in that I attic, know, Greta. It's, it's fabulous. But now all this, this beauty begs the question for which I am so thankful, and I bow down to you, you shot on film. You shot, oh my God, bless you, bless you. You shot on film, and then York Mm -hmm. used the American, the Arikams, and then the Anamorphic, the Ingenues, and the Cook S4s. What, Mm -hmm. why was it so important for you to shoot this film on film? Well, I think on a very basic level, the, the the movie takes place in the 19th century, and although they didn't have motion pictures then, they did have photography, and it felt that that photochemical process and shooting on celluloid was just closer to what was available at the time. It felt like it was part of my storytelling of the time. Um, I think for I think I, I I don't have any objections to digital filmmaking but I I also think you want the medium to match the story and for me this medium matched the story and then as Jess would always say it kind of just falls off the truck (laughs) it's very close to how you want it to look without doing a lot and then beyond that as an as an actor which I've I've been I, I enjoy shooting on film because I think that there it creates a sense of to me, on set, a sense of permanence. When you decide to, you know, okay, we've rehearsed it, now we're going to shoot, and you can hear it roll, and you can feel that we're actually putting something on film, mm-hmm. and it's a physical object. Um, I, I think it makes everyone act a little bit better, <laughs> is my opinion. I certainly know that's true for me. Um, and I think, you know, so much of this is, uh, there's intellectual reasons for it, but then also film is emotional. And I've, uh, I feel for me, I, it's, I, have, I have emotion around film that I don't necessarily have uh, around digital. Um, and I just, when I'm sitting there and looking at it, even when I'm looking at dailies or, or you know, whatever the, the, the scan we're using on the Avid, it still feels that much closer to me to what, what I want it to feel like. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't thank you enough for making it on film. I'm, if, if I had my druthers, oh, every, everything would be on film. Um, and for the very reasons I, I that, would, you were, that you were saying. I would prefer that, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's for the very reasons that you were saying, because uh, the immersion, and it makes... You know, I've been on enough sets, and when I was doing production, it really, it seems that people do up their game. They up their game. I think so. That's my experience of it. But, you know, now coming out as an actor, you know, do you find Mm -hmm. that that, was that a help or a hindrance 
with this film in particular, starting with adapting Alcott's book, which you turned on its head, but yes. it's written so it and does it help as an actor with this adaptation and then directing it? Or did you find uh, your own head yes. getting in the way? Well, I think, you know, for me, being an actor is sort of indistinguishable from, from my experience of, of, of writing and making. And it's something, actually, I've talked a lot to Tracy Letts about, um, because he's an, he's an actor, obviously, and I've worked with him twice, but he's also a great writer, a great, you know, screenwriter, but, but primarily a great playwright. And... Um, I think for both of us, acting is at the heart of the place that we we were able to first express our love for um, storytelling in this way. And I think um, I always come back to it to ground myself because it it, it reminds it, it, in a way it helps me to um, connect to what's vulnerable and what's what I'm asking people to do for me, and it also help me connect back with minds I love and writers I love and I'm about to go do a checkoff in New York which is terrifying but also wonderful and I think um, measuring yourself against great writers and, and trying to rise to them is, is part of it and so when I sat down to write this I, for me my experiences as an actor go into every moment of both writing and directing Mm-hmm. You know, as you were writing this, number one, did you know that you were going to direct it? And number two, did that then influence, were you thinking of your visuals as you were writing this script and structuring it? Yes, I knew I was going to direct it. Nobody else knew that. <laughs> um, uh, nobody else was thinking I was going to direct it. I, I Because I had not yet directed Lady Bird when I was first um, in conversations about uh, this film so I uh, you know it was something that I um, I was keen on doing and I thought about how I would direct it in every single you know moment of writing it um, and it wasn't until after I directed Lady Bird and it came out and did pretty well that um, they came back and said would you like to would you like to direct it and I said yes I, I, would, I would really want to direct it now, you know, would you have held on to this script until a time you could direct it if they hadn't come back after Lady Bird and said, yeah, you know, and said, yeah, you can? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this was something that was very much inside of me. I, I think it, in a way I was very lucky that everything went in the order that it did because I think I had more skills as a director on this movie than I did on Lady Bird. And it's not like skills I can enumerate just kind of the intuitive uh, skill of filmmaking that you get mm -hmm. over lots of films. And yeah. you, I, I don't think you can, you know, you know, know things on your 11th film that you couldn't possibly know on your third film. Sure. Um, so I thought, I thought it was, a, it was a good order as it ended up happening. But um, yeah, this was a movie I was hell bent on making one way or another. So <laughs> I would have held on until they said, yes. <laughs> Or until you had millions and millions of dollars of your own that you could just finance it. 
Right. If I became a hedge funder, I would then make it myself <laughs> with my own money. Well, you know, something that you keenly do with your adaptation of the book, in addition to your temporal shifting and going from a linear tale to a restructuring, you really develop some of the supporting players. I have to tell you, mm. this is the finest structuring and writing of Aunt March and Mr. Lawrence that I have ever seen. Uh, oh, thank you. You really, and then casting Meryl and Chris, fabulous. But the way you develop those two supporting characters that provide wisdom that comes with their age, but from two different perspectives. Yes. You know, I mean, with with Chris Cooper, who I've, I've loved as an actor for as long as I can remember watching movies, um, he, he, I knew, had, you know, this deep well of, of pathos. And I, and I always thought emotionally the link was between him and, and Beth. And that connection was very... Um, strong and beautiful in that kind of finding each other's loneliness and, um, and, and heartbreaking. And, um, and with Meryl and with Aunt Marge, I, I, what, what I found interesting about that was this idea of Aunt March as being a ballast to Marmy's kind of revolutionary hopefulness mm-hmm. and her optimism and her, raising these girls with the sense that they could do anything. And, you know, Aunt March is very much the, the weight on the other side of that, that, the scales. And she's not wrong. And what I, what I found so fascinating about the two of them, of Laura Dern as Marmee and, and Meryl Streep as Aunt March, is neither one of them is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, Aunt March is completely right about the way the world, world is structured and Marmy is completely right to tell them to change it and, and um that that was what I found to be an interesting kind of undercurrent of an argument going on and of course that's what makes the Aunt March's one line Sam Goldwyn's in you know infamous statement I may not always be right but I'm never wrong that m- makes your insertion of that so perfect in this yes, film yes <laughs> I, I just yes, and and of course you that know. was um, that was I have to say a Meryl Streep special. Oh my she, god! She she uh, she came up with that and put it. She I think we should put this in, and she was right. Oh my god, it's fabulous! And of course, then adding another supporting dimension is Tracy Letts as Mister Dashwood, the publisher. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. watching he and Shersha. It's a dance between the two of them. And it's kudos to your editing and your pacing of their exchanges. Because there again, it follows through with that kinetic energy. Yes, they are. Um, I mean, they're, t- they're so wonderful together. And they had obviously worked together on um, Lady Bird. And uh, I always knew I wanted to use Mr. Dashwood as kind of this framing device for the whole for the whole thing um and you know they have a very specific funny dynamic together which was you know in in a limited amount of real estate makes a lot of impact Mm -hmm. and i knew that tracy would be able to do that and also one of my very favorite scenes in the movie if i do say so myself is um the scene between 
Tracy and then uh, Mrs. Dashwood, um, his wife. Yes. And they're kind of like snipey argument that goes on for just three lines and you get this tiny window window into their life which part of me i i I put in because i i knew tracy would be hilarious and also because i just feel like you never see people being passive aggressive in corsets and Mm -hmm. i thought that that would be just very funny to see like oh mr dashwood has a whole life at home and i I love that in movies when there's just a tiny window onto a character where you're like what's that life you give us um, with an argument about her mother you know you open so many of these tiny windows in this film Greta that we get to That's see my way <laughs> we get to see little bits and pieces of the world um and it's it's beautiful the way you do that and then you add the icing on the cake in this instance with Alexander Desplat's score for my money, that is the that should be the Oscar winner this year. Uh, it's exquisite. Um, uh, yes, it's um, it's the most beautiful score I've I've. I feel like I I can say this. I'm biased, but it's one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard, and I feel so lucky that he worked with me. I knew that he was going to make the music while I was um, directing, um, but I didn't have any score yet, and the way he likes to work is, you know, he he sent me a a couple of sketches based on his impression of the script, but um, I I didn't know what it was going to be, but he wanted me to show him an entire cut of the movie with no score. Wow. So I, uh, I did that, and it was terrifying. But it was a good exercise because it makes you find the integrity in the cuts outside of music covering your sins. So um, I, I showed it to him with nothing, and then we, we got to work on what it would be. And he created this, you know, honestly, it's a ballet or a musical without songs. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, it's so much music, and it's so glorious, and it's this kind of combination of... Um, what is um, like like what is the fullness of youth and what is the outline of that once you're in adulthood and and kind of this interplay between the movie within the movie and then uh, the 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 life itself and I it just I, I can't I can't imagine telling this story without that no and I, that he just amazes me because I saw the film at Sony weeks before it hit theaters. Um, for guild voting and, and critics association voting and all of that. And as soon as the film finished, I walked out of the screening room at Sony. And the first thing I said was the score is glorious. Yeah. That was the first thing I said about the film was your score. Wow. It's it. Well, it's, it's really a testament to how much his movie uh, how much his his music is part of the the, the real fabric of the movie? Uh, Greta, I could talk to you all day about any yeah, film that you've too. done. This is this is so fabulous. But I know that that uh, your beloved publicist Matt has you on on a tight schedule. You've got things mm-hmm. uh, so much going on during these final weeks of of the awards season. I, I hope that when things slow down, you'll come back on the show and we can talk more about filmmaking. I would love to have. I'd you be back. thrilled to talk about anything <laughs> filmmaking, and uh, <laughs> it's been a wonderful time to 
uh, to, to be to be in uh, you know Hollywood and see all these wonderful movies, and we're so honored to be part of this group. And um, yeah, it's but, but I'm happy to talk anytime. Oh, you have an open invitation, Greta. Anytime. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, and fingers crossed for February the ninth. Thank you. Thanks, Greta. Bye-bye. Bye. And yes, that was Greta Gerwig, Oscar nominee for Little Women. And now, okay, now we're going to move on to our next set of filmmakers. All right, now i got to find all my notes here. We're switching notes. Okay, Pam. And now I'm so excited. They were so patient and held on. Since we kept Greta Gerwig on a little bit longer, um, welcome Jay Dockendorf and Kenny Sulamonigich. Did I say it right, Kenny? Sure did. Welcome. I'm. I'm so. We're not worthy. <laughs> yes, you are. You shot on film. This is a real treat for me today. First, I get to talk to Greta about shooting on film. Now, you guys do your short. Uh, you know the th- three deaths on film as well. Um, and I'm so happy. I'm always so happy when filmmakers shoot on film. But what I also find striking today is having Greta talk about Little Women, which that book was written in 1868-1869. Three Deaths is adapted on from Tolstoy's short story from 1859. I, I see a theme developing in film where... Good writing is good writing is good writing, and it stands the test of time. Um, and watching what you've done with a short film, adapting Tolstoy, I love it. It's quiet, it's understated, but it speaks volumes. Thank you. Um, you know, let, let me start with, with you, Jay, and I want to... Tolstoy... Who thinks of adapting Tolstoy today? You do. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? I took a class on Tolstoy in college 10 years ago. And when I read this story, I thought this is the most beautiful story I've ever read. I wonder if anyone else has ever adapted it for a movie. Um, And the answer was no, as far as I know at this point. Uh, I've done some research, and I don't think that it's been adapted anywhere else. So finding that out and then having some some film uh, that Kenny and I were sitting on, a reserve of film that was donated to us from a prior project, um, the idea of making this just sort of came together. I think Greta actually put it really well when she described sort of why you shoot on film. Um, in some ways, this film was almost kind of reverse engineered to be a movie shot on film. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it just made a lot of sense to take an old story from an old world um, and then kind of capture it in the sort of grainy, older aesthetic, the texture of 35, mm. um, a, a marriage that would, that would work well. And I'm glad we did it. Well, and what I love is because I, I <clears throat> thoroughly enjoy Tolstoy, and I haven't, I read Three Deaths, a tale, eh, probably 40 years ago now. And it all, what struck me, I was. I still remember what struck me was the simplicity of the story. Four four little chapters, um, 
and the simplicity of the story. You and you retain that simplicity. You and you and Kenny, you don't go for visual bells and whistles or anything. You retain that simplicity. How did you go about adapting the story for a scripted short film? And then Kenny, how did you go about designing the visual tonal bandwidth to uh, to accompany that? Well, briefly, um, we were stripping back. You know, we felt like a minimal approach would be better. The, the title is minimal. The, the story is short. The dialogue in Tolstoy's story kind of leads the whole thing. It, I felt like when I reread it again, to my surprise, it was written more like a screenplay than I even remembered it being just with a few scene setting descriptions and then like a lot of dialogue in between with some stage directions explaining what a character's body language was in between this line or that line. And so, you know, we had to, I was excited to honor that. And uh, the challenge was modernizing it because our story is set in probably, it's set in America in the present day. Mm. Um, and there were a lot of things that had to be adjusted. You know, the, the question of, carriage drivers becoming, you know, black car hired drivers, personal chauffeurs, that kind of thing, and a few other job titles that came and went in the story being either eliminated or updated was a big challenge because, again, we, we didn't want to break what wasn't broken mm-hmm. or fix what wasn't broken, I should say. And um, we just wanted to keep it tight and powerful and around the same amount of time it would take to read it maybe about 14 minutes mm-hmm. um and then kenny was amazing with planning the the, the shots with me i'll let him explain all that yes talk kenny talk <laughs> <laughs> well um it was actually pretty simple um after reading the story a couple times and talking to jay about it um we kind of decided to throw out a lot of the kind of tricky, glossy, um, flashy stuff that we might do or see and kind of other stuff that's coming out today. And while that is pretty fun to do, sometimes it can take away from a story and it can take away nuance from a story. Um, and it can also add a lot to a story, but, you know, you have to really be delicate with it. And um, from the very beginning, we were watching clips from movies and kind of like, you know, watching stuff with the sound off and like watching like, like coverage and like, like scene coverage and, and all that stuff. And it was kind of like, you know, the kind of the one oh one basics um, going, going back, going back to them and just kind of being like, okay, well, like why, why should this be covered this way? Who's talking here? Whose perspective is it? Whose headspace should we be in? And, and then, you know, there were some things that we decided to do, like the, um, so, you know, the film deals with, with class and, um, and, and space. And so one in kind of the kind of upper class space, we decided to kind of, if you will, rough that up with a handheld camera and in the, um, in the face of the kind of poor and destitute people, we decided to shoot that very cleanly and plainly and, like almost soberly in, in a way um, to to show that difference in a very kind of quick and simple um, style. Mm-hmm. 
Talk, talk to me how you how you developed your your the palette, your color palette. You stay away from from bright colors. It's very denatured until we get to essentially what would be, I guess, chapter three, chapter four. I mean, the greens of the forest, absolutely gorgeous. The imagery that you capture there, Kenny, is stunning. But similarly, we have our wealthy woman um, as she's lying in in bed in wait for death to come. Um, it's light. It's bright. It's white, white, white. Almost, you know, the whole metaphor for seeing, you know, seeing the bright light as you're dying. Um, but it's so striking in contrast to when we first meet her months earlier in the winter. So I'm curious um, how the two of you developed the the tonal palette there. Well, we 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 established a palette um, <clears throat> with like Pantones um, in our look book uh, at the beginning of pre-production. And we kind of were gunning for it as much as we could. Our incredible production designer, Jeremy Jacob, did so much to guarantee that props were removed if they'd clashed with that palette or, and additional things were brought in to amplify that. Um, it's a Russian short story set in winter that we're basing the film on, so it seemed appropriate to keep things um, gray. And we took a lot of cues from Tarkovsky and... Um, the other Russian masters, uh, whatnot. Um, and then Kenny, what else? Kenny and I are in the same room together right now. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> we we were, um, you know, in terms of the the pale colors that you see. One of the things we were trying to think about was like how different cultures represent the color of death, and obviously in Western. Uh, Anglo culture, it's often black. We wear black clothes to funerals. But, you know, um, in traditional Chinese culture, for example, white flowers are used at funerals. White envelopes are used, um, you know, um, when someone dies. And, and so thinking about things like that in kind of a simple and detached and kind of weirdly dissociated way um, helped us maybe create a feeling on the set that everyone was thinking about and um, channeling into making the film really. Mm -hmm. Because I, I love that, that the contrast that we see, but then everything really ties together with your exterior shots of the forest uh, and the tree getting cut mm. down uh, because it pulls, you've got the light from the sky. You've got the, a more saturated the greens are more saturated than what we see earlier in the film um and it really the metaphor that you have in there it it stays true to tolstoy's written word um where did i've got to ask you where did you film this because that little forest scene is just so beautiful and it actually looks very east coast yeah it it, it is in uh willow new york which is outside of Woodstock, okay. at the home of our incredible editor, Andy Hayfitz, um, who I've worked with a, a few times now. Um, he edited my first feature, Nas Malik, and he generously gave us access to his um, sort of large, sprawling backyard uh, to, and 
permission to make firewood out of two trees that he sacrificed to the, to the film. Uh, that location, all the locations, we also shot on the Upper East Side of Park Ave mm-hmm. for the penthouse where the woman dies. And, you know, I think that, to your point about the color palette of the film, um, Kenny and I both have a documentary background and intend to keep making documentaries alongside our fiction work. Uh, there's just a certain amount of chance and um, kind of happy accidents turning into um, film uh, on screen that we welcome into the projects that we make. And so a lot of what we saw, we just accepted because that was the sort of in the um, level of production design or a control over an environment that we were willing to, to have, you know, mm-hmm. or able to have, I should say. Mm-hmm. Well, another very key element that really comes through in in the exterior sequence in in the forest, your sound design, <clears throat> where there's no score and we're he- just hearing nature, we're hearing birds chirp. It is so. There's an ethereal nature to it that's so beautiful. Did you capture the sounds, production sounds, or did you pull them from a sound library? How did you come up with that oral design, especially in, in that, the wow. final sequence? Because it is so beautiful. Thanks. That was uh, a marriage of the talents of uh, sound mixer and designer Kieran Kay, mm-hmm. as well as our composer, uh, Adam Gunther, who I believe may have been the recordist of that forest sound. Uh, I think that the piece of music that played afterwards, he explained to me, was actually also recorded in the woods. Um, wow. And that a lot of that is the location sound from his recording before. But I know we, we, la- we layered in a few other elements, the sound of a uh, of a stream far off in the distance and a few other things. And we thought a lot about when there would be silence to sort of amplify the seriousness of the the tree's death. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just kind of the, the product of a lot of people thinking, and I think feeling told stories, um, stories power uh, together. And I, I, the result is the collaboration of, of all of us. Well, I have to I have to tell you that is my favorite sequence of the film. Um I could just watch that and just listen to that over and over and you know the sound of of the 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 babbling brook. Um and it's it's soft. It's not gush it's not a gushing rapid or anything. And it really it just and because of the silence and you let nature play out it really heightens your own senses and your thoughts as you're watching this. It's so beautifully done. So beautifully done, guys. Mm, thank you. you know, thank you, yeah. This is not the first time at the rodeo for the two of you together. So I'm curious, what is the magic? What makes your collaboration work for the two of you, be it with... A narrative piece or a documentary? Um, <laughs> I looked at Kenny. I think we were both at a loss for words. Uh-oh. Uh, well, we live. 
we're, we live together, we're housemates, and so we're kind of working all the time, sort of around the clock, on something. If it's talking about a project or um, sharing cuts, and he's always looking over my shoulder as I'm either editing myself or watching an edit of something, and weighing in, and um, we were watching the same films and really trying to share the same reference point, uh, because the collaboration is so is so important to us, and this is maybe our fourth or maybe fifth project over three or so years. Um, with hopefully, many more to come. Uh, we also have sort of a <clears throat> philosophical, mac- like, you know, sort of maxim or principle that we try to apply, which is that when we're designing a, a set, a, a shooting experience, or literally on set, we generally say, like, if there's a shot that Kenny wants, we get it. And if there's a shot that I want, we always get it. And we try not to sort of second-guess each other too much on coverage and make room for um, sort of both voices to play out in the way the cinematography is is constructed. And that's been really, I think, very satisfying for both of us. I don't know, Kenny, do you think it's satisfying? Yeah, it is, definitely. And I, I wanted to just say that... Um, that the the maxim that you know where we don't skip a shot that the other wants is um is how some of maybe our favorite moments happened um in both making three deaths and in documentary and stuff and there's always kind of this like feeling of when you're working and uh you know maybe it's been a long day or it's cold or it's raining or whatever um uh you know on, on the last day of three deaths it was it was sort of crazy towards the end because we were running out of film stock and it was like raining outside and everyone had to like work in the rain and we were like going into overtime and there were moments that we knew we needed but uh just hadn't gotten yet or the schedule or something was going to happen and it was just kind of like remembering what was your grunting and what you were there to do and kind of like pushing through it um you know like 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 you're running a marathon or something and just kind of remembering that there's something at the other end, there's like a, there's like a hot meal at the other end, or there's like a, uh, a great day of footage at the other end or whatever. It's, it's all kind of just taking that and you, and applying it to filmmaking is, is basically the way we work. And, you know, do, do you guys have a preference at this point of a documentary versus narrative? I think we just like true stories you know if it, if it feels true uh that's good enough for us <laughs> it, uh, it's hard to distinguish um i think lately maybe kenny and i have sort of adopted the attitude that we think that uh documentary films are a lot of fun to make and are thrilling and exciting puzzles to solve and at this point Narrative filmmaking is a little bit more of a rewarding challenge that leads to a lot of satisfaction later, but isn't as, um, like, on a moment-to-moment basis, quite as uh, fun. Mm-hmm. So it's nice for us to have a little bit of documentary every once in a while as a snack. <laughs> um, and then to otherwise uh, be focused on the longer projects, which usually take a little bit more time to develop um, of narrative work. 
uh, and are more dependent on a lot of facts coming together. Whereas I think that whenever Kenny and I find an idea for a documentary, if we really like it, we we often find ourselves making it pretty quickly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the greatest, most satisfying thing about having the two in our in our wheelhouse sort of jointly. So I can't choose between the two. Well, you know, one one of the great joys that's going to happen for everybody is next week you've got your world premiere of three deaths at Sundance. Do you yeah. not on the twenty so fourth? Cool. How exciting is that yeah. for you guys? Unbelievable! It's like it was so much of a crazy uphill. <clears throat> kind of battle getting every element in place and then the news of Sundance kind of couldn't have come at a better time um, both just you know um, in the film's life and in maybe our life and um, you know it's, it's, it's really exciting especially because so many of the great amazing filmmakers of the world have kind of passed through there and or will be there and um, you know it's, it's just such a privilege to be in such company and uh, one of the kind of exciting things that is happening at Sundance is um, at least one of our screenings, um, but maybe 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 more are going to be projected on film. We had a film print made, super exciting. It's my first time doing that, um, so it's kind of a cool landmark uh, per- personally, but and artistically. But yeah, it's, it's it's cool. It's like kind of we were kind of both speechless when it happened, and it's you know it's like we were pinching ourselves for like a week, so. So are you guys going to go to Sundance? Will you be there in person? Yeah, we will. We're going with a lot of our amazing team members, um, some of whom have multiple projects in the festival, and many of whom or have had many projects in the past. I think it's our editor Andy's fifth or sixth um, project to go. Oh, well, he doesn't need to go then. He doesn't need to go. And see, you know, eh, he's he's going to be bored, you know. Yeah, he might be. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Uh, the, but the rest of us are going for the first time and over the moon. Um, wow! We'll sort of staying together and hopefully traveling as kind of a wolf pack. Well, got... and a couple of the um, a couple of the actors are coming too, which is pretty pretty exciting. And they're and they're both, you know, kind of happy and. And excited to be there too to represent the film. And hey, it's Sundance. You got to be happy and excited to make it to Sundance. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we weren't really sure that we were going to make it anywhere when we were making this film. And, um, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a huge challenge. And the takeaway for us has been that just because you feel like you're um, suffering or something doesn't mean you're failing necessarily. Because it was a really challenging. Um, set of conditions that we shot and there's so many exteriors so many cast members a lot of production moving vehicles and all of that stuff and I swear we weren't thinking about Sundance or even trying to and you, count any sort of eggs before they, the chicken hatched or whatever and saying. you didn't even um, have the luxury so this is a huge surprise and we're delighted you didn't even have the luxury of shooting it straight through because you've got scenes in better weather and winter weather so you had downtime in there too, and then you run the risk of are, are your, is your talent available? What's going to happen? Um, so yeah, you really, yeah, you you challenged yourselves with this one, boys. <laughs> you did. Yeah, yeah. I think we we like we like a challenge. Kenny 
we can you talk about a marathon yeah we're, we're kind of we're anti easy isn't so much fun ah. well guys i can't thank you enough for coming on the show today to talk about the film congratulations thank sundance you. how many times is, isn't this film screening in the shorts programs four or five times next week four times four times okay but so anybody, everybody yeah. at Sundance needs to check this out. And do you have any Short program too? Any plans yet for after Sundance with this one? No, 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 no. We we, we don't know what life it'll take when the films when the film festival's over. I hope that as many people as possible get to see it. I'd like to play in Russia one or yeah. two times to get back to Tolstoy's home and uh, maybe visit his. Uh, his farm, Yasnaya Poliana, outside mm-hmm. of St. Petersburg, and um, sort of take a look around and, and, and give thanks a little bit. We're, uh, oh, that would be great. Uh, you know, we're excited to see just where it could go. So, well, um, hopeful. I can't wait to see where it goes. Guys, thank you so, so much. This has been wonderful so talking much. to you. And hopefully, yeah, you'll work you. on something else and you'll come back on the show again. Whenever hey, you want to, such a pleasure. Uh, have fun at Sundance, guys. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, and that was Jay Do- writer-director Jay Dockendorf and cinematographer Kenny Sulamonigich talking about their short, Three Deaths, which has its world premiere at Sundance next week. Shorts Program 2 premieres on the 24th. If you're up at Sundance, check it out. Huge thanks to Greta Gerwig. Oscar nominee for Little Women joining us today. Um, A a real thrill having Greta with us. And a real thrill getting to talk to Greta about film and then getting to talk to Jay and Kenny about shooting on film as well. That is all the time we have today. We will be back next week. We'll find out what the DGA uh, has to say about uh, who walks away with Directors Guild Awards. And we will have the filmmakers from Natural Disasters here next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.